um, as we uh, dive in real quick is, first of all, we're going to be in the book of James, so if you have your Bible, turn to the book of James. If for some reason you, you don't have a Bible or, or you're here for the first time and you're checking things out, just raise your hands and one of the ushers will gladly hand you a Bible that you can use for uh, the sermon for this morning. One thing that um, we have that uh, we have quite a few people that take um, advantage of is we post all of our sermons online on YouTube uh, as well as our website and all of that. And I wanted to just make note of change that um, for several years we've housed most of our sermons on Vimeo. And uh, we've had several people over the last several months mention, um, hey, listen, you need to make the switch to YouTube. I don't know if you've heard of YouTube, but it's a little bigger than Vimeo. And so everything is now over on um, YouTube. We have a catalog of old sermons on Vimeo still, but the, the series on Jonah and then the new series that we're in now in James is on there. And so just wanted to make note of that uh, for you to take advantage of um, if you desire to do so. And then this morning we're going to continue in the book of James. So uh, a couple things to make note of if you're visiting. First of all, my name is Jesse. I haven't introduced myself yet. Hi, how you doing? Um, welcome to Sierra Bible Church. And then secondly, what we do as a church is uh, we don't teach topical sermons by and large. We do on occasion, but we actually teach through books of the Bible. And so since actually I've been leading the church, we've been through, we took a year, almost an entire year in the Gospel of John, and then we took our entire summer series in the book of Jonah, and now we're in the book of James. And James is a practical book. It's a book uh, that is considered part of the wisdom literature within the Bible. Uh, that would include another book that you have probably heard of, the book of Proverbs. So let's just highlight a couple things before we dive into this book this morning that are important for us to be reminded of. First of all, James is the guy who wrote this book. James is the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So he did not have a miraculous virgin birth, so you're aware. He was born in the conventional sense. That's what makes him the half-brother, okay? You with me? Uh, James grew up with Jesus, was compared to Jesus. The Bible actually teaches us and tells us that James, James, as he was growing up with Jesus, as, his, as Jesus' younger brother, actually didn't believe that his older brother was the Messiah. Can you blame him? Any of you have a sibling you consider the Christ? Probably not. So, so he, he, growing up with, with Jesus, the Bible actually teaches us that Jesus' brothers didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And one of the reasons that we believe in Jesus as the Messiah is because of the reality that we have eyewitness accounts and the Bible doesn't hide or convolute or cloud the reality of what these people thought about Jesus. James was an eyewitness of Jesus. And then after Jesus' resurrection in Corinthians, we're told that when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he appeared to James first. And upon peering to James, his younger brother, James then believed in Jesus Christ changed his view on who Jesus was, as someone rising from the dead would probably do that to you. And then once he, he did that, he became a leader in the church. And we see James in the book of Acts where the church was born. He's leading the church in the book of Acts, both in chapter 1. You also see it in chapter 15 of Acts. And he becomes, as Scripture teaches us, a pillar in the church. He becomes a very important uh, person within the church. Even before Peter shows up on the scene, James is a key contributor to the church thriving in, first, in the first century. Now, with that said, James starts out this book, and because it is wisdom literature, remember, James pulls from two very important resources. The two resources that James pulls from as he writes this particular book are, first of all, he's pulling from Proverbs itself. 
from, from the literature of wisdom. And he's also pulling heavily from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings to, the, to those who are to be Christians, how they're to live their lives in a very particular, wise, beautiful way. And so James is on this understanding of, hey, listen, I'm giving you wisdom from both the Old Testament and I'm giving you wisdom from Jesus himself that you would live this particular beautiful life. And James starts this book out with the same understanding that Proverbs comes from, and that is that, that life is filled with hardship. If you go back in the book of Proverbs, you'll see in many places in the Old Testament, you'll see that the writers of those books don't actually have to share with you or teach you that pain and suffering exist in the world. There's just an understanding in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that pain and suffering exist. So let's ask the first question, has anyone ever been through any kind of pain or suffering? All right, there's been a couple of you. And, and so this reality, the Bible doesn't shy away from it. And if you remember last week when we talked about trials and tribulations, I mentioned that many people who are in psychology and doctors say that those in the United States of America are the least equipped to deal with trials and tribulations than anyone else in the world. Quite possibly other than we are more incapable of dealing with pain and suffering, even more so than maybe any culture ever in all of the world. Someone was sharing with me after I shared this last uh, in the first service that worked in the medical field, they said, hey, listen, we as Americans, we don't even know how to deal with a broken bone. Because we get a broken bone, and the first thing they do is they give you some kind of medication to deal with it, right? We have Norco and Oxycontin, and there's anything we can get our hands on to not feel physical pain, and we take that same approach in our mental, emotional pain. So and what I mean by that is, is if you, in our culture, we hide pain and suffering. If we don't know how to deal with pain and suffering. And because we hide it, we don't know what's normal. So if you've ever been in a particular situation where you've lost a loved one or you've dealt with an emotional trauma, you haven't necessarily seen someone else deal with that emotional trauma. So you don't even know when you're suffering if your suffering is is a legitimate kind of suffering, if you're even dealing with it in a very healthy way. Most oftentimes we'll ask the question, I'm hurting, but I don't know if this is normal pain or not. And if you contrast that to Jesus' day, first of all, you understand that Jesus dealt with very heavy emotional trial and tribulation. We're taught that Jesus actually carried the sin of the world on his shoulders on the cross. So he dealt with a kind of pain, an emotional kind of pain, that we can never ever really fully comprehend. We're also taught of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows. And because he was a man of sorrows, he, he wept. In fact, the shortest verse in the entire Bible literally is, Jesus wept. And that particular verse comes from a moment where one of Jesus' best friends dies, Lazarus. And when Lazarus dies, there's this emotional kind of feeling that you see it from the women and and you see it from the family members of Lazarus. And they tell him, he shows up to the grave three days after Lazarus dies. And if you remember, Jesus is like, I'm going in the tomb. And the the women say, no, because if, if you read King James Version, it says, no, because he stinketh. Don't go in the tomb. And nonetheless, we know Jesus does, and he heals them and all of that. But what you may not know is is in Jesus' day, the value of a person's life was actually weighed by how, how emotional and how visceral people responded to that person's death. So what they did in Jesus' day is they actually hired mourners and weepers to sit outside of the tomb to wail and to cry and to express their emotions, which was true of Lazarus. He was a rich man, and there were women there that were hired to cry. And, and, and now think about this for a moment, and I asked this question in the first service. When, when was the last time, or how many times in your life, 
have you seen a dead body? For some of us, it's only a few. There was a doctor here this morning, and he was like, hundreds. And then Nancy, Nancy made mention to me in the middle of the service. She wanted to let everyone know, I've seen lots of dead bodies. Don't ask why, but she felt the need to express that she'd seen many dead bodies. So pray for Nancy. She's a little more. Um, <laughs> if you know Nancy, you know that's funny. If you don't know Nancy, you think it's weird and just move on. I didn't say it. We hide our pain. We hide it in the American culture. We don't know how to deal with it. In fact, C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says about how we deal with suffering and this idea of wisdom that we're going to go into this morning. He says, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem for them, how they dealt with things, was that human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was to conform their soul to that objective reality was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern person now, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of man. And the solution is a technique. Now what he's saying, what he's saying is, is that back in the day, if you will, when we dealt with a particular issue or problem, we dealt with it objectively. We asked for knowledge to understand what we were dealing with and then the wisdom and how to apply in that life. He says, now what we have, what we have is we have a lot of people in the information age who have all the information in the world at their fingertips, but they have absolutely no wisdom in how to deal with it, right? You, you can this morning, if I make some particular statement, you can within seconds fact check it on your phone to see if what I said was really true or not. But what you don't have is the ability to live that truth out. And so, so James here says, he says, hey, listen, you're going to deal with trials, and then he goes into where we're going to go this morning. So uh, if you're visiting this morning, what we do, it might seem a little different for you, but if you are visiting this morning, we have a high value for God's word, and so when we read scripture, we stand for the reading of scripture. So if you're able to this morning, would you please stand with me as we read our passage that we're going to be in, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now remember, these are the Jewish tribes that because of persecution and trial have been dispersed amongst Jerusalem. He then says, count it all joy. Greetings, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Notice the word lacking nothing, because he then picks up same language in verse 5. If you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is your word, Lord. We come before you asking for you to use it in a way that molds us and shapes us to be the humans that you have always intended us to be healthy, holistic, and God-glorifying. We trust you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. You may be seated. After James comes from this reality of teaching the Christian church that you will indeed count, encounter various trials. He does not say if you encounter various trials. He says you will encounter them. Again, the Bible does not glaze over or hide the reality that men and women throughout this life, throughout this world, will deal with some kind of hardship and pain. 
And James then, because it is wisdom literature, and oftentimes if you read through Proverbs, Proverbs kind of jumps around. It, it's almost hard to follow the thought. Like when we were in Jonah as a narrative, Jonah follows a pattern of Jonah's life. It doesn't give us all the information that we probably want, but it gives us all the information that we need, and it progresses from chapter one to chapter four like a good story. Even in Romans, you can follow Paul's theological doctrinal thought and understand it where he's going, but James is, is kind of disjointed like Proverbs as well. It jumps around a little bit. And if you're not paying attention to the text quite close enough, you might think that chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 are disconnected from verses 5 through 8. Because he goes from the place of you'll encounter trials and tribulations, but take joy in those trials and tribulations because God will use them to make you perfect and complete. And then he jumps to wisdom. And he says, now, if you have wisdom, and it's easy to look and go, okay, we're leaving trials and tribulations behind, and now we're going to wisdom. And that's not the case. This is uh, still part of the thought from the previous section. He is saying, if you've encountered trials and tribulations, which you will, you then need to ask for wisdom in that trial and tribulation. You need to ask for God's guidance in that. So now we have to do a little bit of work of trying to define what biblical wisdom is and what it is not. Biblical wisdom, first of all, is not just understanding or information. It isn't just knowing the facts. Many Christians in their growth, because remember, James has been written that we would grow as Christians. It is not written that you would just absorb information. And many Christians stop there. They know God is good. They know God is gracious. And then their life looks exactly the same as it did previously to that knowledge. Wisdom biblically is the ability to apply what you know to the problems of life, specifically what you know about God and applying those things that you know about God to the life that you live. And what's really beautiful about this is if you go back to, again, Proverbs, which James pulls from, the understanding of wisdom in Proverbs is even more beautiful than just application. The idea in Proverbs when it talks about wisdom is that, uh, that wisdom is a life that is lived skillfully. That it's lived not, and it goes even deeper than that in the definition, that it's, that it's not just lived skillfully, it's lived artistically and poetically. That when you live your life, that you live it in such a way that people say they live an artistic, beautiful, poetic life. That there's poetry to the way that you live, right? Some of us have read really good books, and some of us don't read bad books at all because they're, they suck, they're bad books, right? Some of us in the room you're, you're not fun to read. Your life is not artistic. It's not poetic. I made a joke uh, this morning, and some appreciated it, and some did not. But if you, the, the word skillful, apply it to like a finished carpenter. A finished carpenter, if to do good carpentry well, has to be skilled at his job because everyone sees it. The part that some didn't like is if you're a framer, you can hide your mistakes behind sheetrock. I had a few framers correct me of that this morning <laughs> to share with me that that wasn't entirely true. And I appreciate that. Nonetheless, I still use this as an example. There are certain mistakes that you can hide, but as a skillful carpenter, a, a, a finished carpenter, what the trim, everyone sees the trim. 
Everyone sees the countertop. Everyone sees that finished work. And they will either make a judgment that you are a good carpenter or a bad one. And likewise, the Bible is saying, especially in, in the lens of dealing with suffering, how you live that will prove whether you are a skillful, poetic person or if your life is completely lived in foolishness and brokenness. So James is making an appeal to us as Christians to have wisdom, and he's telling us specifically to ask God for wisdom, a few points of wisdom that are important from the Bible. Number one, true wisdom acknowledges that God is involved in everything. True wisdom recognizes that there's no such thing as just happenstance or coincidence, but that God is sovereign in all, but he's also good in all. And it's important you understand that distinction. Because sometimes when hard things happen, we think maybe God is not good, or we think that he does not care. Proverbs, again, says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Okay, we can get that maybe as Christians. I need to trust God. But then he says this. If you remember the piece of Scripture, and many of you will remember it because you've been saved long enough to know, it then says to not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Then he says in verse 7, listen carefully, be wise not in your own eyes, but fear the Lord. It's important that you take note of what Proverbs teaches in regards to obtaining and getting wisdom. The first step in getting wisdom is to admit you're a fool. The first step is to admit that you don't know much. The Bible's understanding in regards to how it changes the world is that actually teaches that, that, that God saves the world and changes the world through foolishness, right? We live in a culture that says, you want to change the world? Vote the right guy into office. Jesus says, you want to change the world? Start washing people's feet. We like to say, you know what? We need people in power and we need people in leadership. And Jesus says, no, you need a, you need a God who dies on the cross for your sins. It's completely upside down. In fact, even what you're experiencing right now, the Bible says is foolish. What do I mean by that? The Bible says specifically that God changes hearts through the foolishness of the preaching of God's word. Now, I don't know if that, you know this, that doesn't make me feel all that great. <laughs> the Bible, you know, seriously, God came to me at some point, said, listen, Jesse, I'm going to give you a job. Well, what kind of job is it? It's going to be a foolish job. You want to sign me up for something stupid? Yes. Why? Because I'm going to use it. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't. The Bible said, like, if you're here this morning and you're like, you know what? Like, I don't know that I like sitting through preaching. I don't like to podcast preaching. I don't like to listen sermons. You are completely natural. This is weird. Who, who in their right mind gets up in the morning and says, you know what? I need to be a better human being. I'll, what I'll do every week is I'll show up and listen to some short, stocky guy yell and scream at me for 45 minutes, and then hopefully, hopefully I'll feel better about myself. It's foolish. It's completely foolish. And yet God says that somehow in this respect, by honoring God's word, he uses preaching and teaching from a place like this to transform his people into his image. So let me just say that if you're a seeker, if you're someone who's trying to figure out who Jesus is, and this is abnormal to you, I get it. I understand. However, Take note that somehow in God's wisdom, we have to do what Proverbs says. Admit you're a fool and acknowledge God in all your ways. This is really important because people don't get better because they don't admit there's something wrong. Like nobody goes to a counselor when they feel like they're healthy. 
I'm feeling really good today. I think I'll go see a counselor. No, by the time they finally come to me, or by the time they actually go to someone else that's another counselor, they've come to a place where trial and tribulation has hit their life. Their marriage is rocky. Their relationship with their kids isn't healthy. Or there's some other disturbance in their life or some kind of addiction, some kind of depression, and they finally reach out. Now, how much healthier do you think we would be if we actually allowed ourselves to be humble and say, you know what, what would be wrong with sitting in front of somebody? What would be wrong with it? And admitting that I don't have it together, admitting that I'm foolish, and asking someone else from an objective standpoint to speak into my life to make me be a a better human being. What What if God would use the foolishness of you sitting down with some strange counselor that you don't know? And the the key to this, so you understand is that this wisdom and this knowledge and this counseling, it can't come from just all this weird psychobabble stuff. It has to come from God's word alone. It has to come from God. Which wisdom, we're told, wisdom alone is found in God alone. Ultimate wisdom is found in God alone. Job 28, 12. Job says, but where shall wisdom be found? Remember, Job's going through it. His family's died. He's got boils all over his body. And he writes, where can wisdom be found? He's asking, how do I know how to deal with my suffering? Where's the place of understanding, he says. He goes on and says, man doesn't know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not within me. He then goes on to say, it can't be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. From where then does wisdom come from, and where's the place of understanding? He then goes on and says, It is hidden from the eyes of the all-living, concealed from the birds of the air, and only God understands its way and knows its place. He's saying that only God alone ultimately has this truth. You want to know the ultimate reality of Christianity? If you are a true Christian and you believe in Jesus Christ, you are the most pessimistic person on the planet, all while at the same time being the most optimistic person on the planet. One pastor I've heard say, as Christians, we're always moving from a funeral to a resurrection. Jesus' death and his resurrection. See, what that, what that means is, as Christians, we understand that there is a fracture in this world. We believe that something has happened and that our relationship with God has been fractured. And that humanity does not naturally want to go glean or be with God. Because to be with God is to be even more reminded of how unperfect you really are. Because when you're with a perfect God and you don't have the perfection of Christ over you, you feel that fracturedness. You know that you can't live life according to the way that you want to live life. You can no longer be your own God. This is very, very uncomfortable. And as Christians, we recognize that pain, suffering, death, depression are not natural designs in which God wanted us to live with. And so we're painfully aware that every time someone gets a disease, every time somebody passes away, every time someone's marriage fails and falls apart, we recognize that the origin of that is the fracturedness that we have with God. The horizontal relationship with each other is fractured because the vertical relationship with God is fractured. That is the most pessimistic view of life you can have. Man is sinful, man is wrong, man is foolish. And then we're super optimistic because God came and saved us from that. And he loves you enough to bring you out of your own foolishness to live a life of gloriousness. So we have, we are, we are the most bipolar people on the planet. And if you don't believe me, and, and I say that jokingly, we're not actually bipolar, but I, 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 when you look biblically, you can see that from the Old Testament into the New. Do you remember the Psalms? Remember David? Uh, one moment, I love you, God. The next, I kill me. I'm out of here. 
You look at Peter, it's the same thing. You look at Paul, and Paul says it like this. He says, man, I got an issue. I don't know why I don't do the things I know I should do. I don't understand myself. He goes even further with the thought, and he progresses, and he says, man, to live is Christ. When he says that, he's saying to live, there's hope. To live, there's salvation. To live, there's joy. And then he says, but to die is gain. And then you hear him say this, I'm hard-pressed between the two. I don't know which to take. He's saying, basically, I want to live, but I kind of want to die. I kind of just want this life to be over with. I don't want to deal with this pain anymore. I don't want to deal with the depression anymore. I don't want to deal with loved ones dying anymore. I'm just, if heaven's really real, like, let's go. Have you ever thought that? My kids have asked me that. Why don't we go to heaven now? If it's that great, why not now? And Paul answers the question. I'm here for your benefit. I'm here for a purpose. And so we find ourselves at this place where we have to acknowledge that God is, 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 that God is in all, that true wisdom recognizes that God is in everything, and that wisdom is ultimately found in him, and that God has ultimate, the ultimate wisdom. Romans says that we cannot even fully understand the depths and the riches of his wisdom. The Bible also goes forward in this idea of wisdom and shares with us from 2 Timothy that essentially in order to be saved, your eyes have to be illuminated to the wisdom of God. That you have to actually see that salvation is is a foolish thing, but it's the wisest thing at the same time. And until your eyes are illuminated to that reality, Jesus will not be the Messiah or your God that you can follow because it just simply won't make any sense. And for those of us that have given our lives to God, we recognize that the world outside, for the most part, looks at what we do is extremely odd. And it is. And I encourage our church on a regular basis to just recognize that what we do on a Sunday and what we've dedicated our lives to throughout the week seems very peculiar. The Bible goes as far as telling you that you're an alien in this world. And, and for those of you who are super nationalistic, you get really offended when the Bible says things like this. Like, you know, you're an alien. You don't have a nation other than the nation of the kingdom of God. Your salvation is in the kingdom of, of God, not in America. And so don't vote for me and stuff. Um, here's another thing that you need to understand as well. It tells us in Luke that Jesus as a young child grew in wisdom. If Jesus, who is God himself, needed to grow in wisdom, how much more so do you and I? But James is also adding to the reality of wisdom that when you have wisdom, wisdom is one of the keys that unlocks the ultimate joy and happiness in one's life. Look at the way that he doubles down. If you remember in James chapter 1, verse 1, he uses the word greetings to those of the dispersia, those who have been dispersed. That word greetings literally means and is defined as joy to you. What he's saying to the readers, and for those of us who are listening this morning, he's saying, this, what I'm writing to you, is because of your joy and your benefit. And then he adds on that, he doubles down in verse 2, and then he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. Uses again another word to express the reality that what he's sharing about wisdom and what he's sharing about trials and tribulations can be used for your ultimate joy and happiness. Let me ask the question, how many of you want more happiness and joy in your life? You ever notice there's just some people in life that just seem to have more serotonin than others? I think it's a little unfair, to be honest with you. Where'd you get all your serotonin from? Oh, it's natural? Oh. 
Proverbs chapter 3, verse 13 says this, happy is the one who finds wisdom. Proverbs 24, verse, verses 13 through 14 says, my son, eat honey for it's good, and the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. And then he uses the contrast for wisdom. Know that wisdom is the same for your soul. It's honey for the soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. As one pastor says, if you find true wisdom, it will lead you infallibly to a happy future, and that happy future will last forever. Or as Proverbs 19.8 says, whoever gets wisdom loves his own soul. See, again, if we use the definition of wisdom, it's the ability to apply what you know specifically about God and the Word of God to the problems of life. It will lead to a kind of joy that you probably don't currently possess right now. And it may be this morning, my friends, that the reason that you're not asking for wisdom is because you're still too proud to admit that you need wisdom. And so what James is teaching us is inevitably what happens is because he loves you enough that he wants you to actually have a happy life, he will bring a trial or a tribulation in your life because that is finally the time that you call out for help. Is it not? When you get cancer, you go to the doctor. When you get some kind of depression or some kind of trial, that's the moment you finally call out to God. Or you look to the heavens and you ask him why. If that's the only theology you have, why, God? And many of us at times, we don't see God as being loving in that trial. We get angry with him. Why are you allowing this in my life? I don't deserve this. Don't you know that I've been coming to Sunday church every week? Don't you know, Lord, that I pray and I tithe and I, I do all these religious things? You owe me, God. And in that, you've, met, you've turned God into someone you can barter with. Right? Here's some Pokemon cards for you. Now give me some Pokemon cards back. It's kind of the transaction deal. Instead of recognizing that God loves you and he actually legitimately cares, and you can find this theologically, he legitimately cares about your joy. Christianity was not designed to control you. It was designed by God to bless you. That you would find blessings in him. And God has made it as such that your joy is connected to a relationship with God. And that it is almost impossible to experience true, depth, everlasting, eternal, significant joy without being in a relationship with with himself. That is what wisdom is. It's going to God and asking God, would you give me wisdom? Which leads me to the next point in the message. He tells us that we should have this kind of wisdom, and he then teaches about this wisdom that in order to get it, what must we do? You gotta ask. The, the teaching here is, is, first of all, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, let him earn wisdom. It doesn't say, let him merit or strive for wisdom. No, no, no. It says, let him ask. You know what's beautiful about that? Any dum-dum can ask. It's the call that you don't have to have it all together. It's, again, because James is very practical, we almost lose the definition of grace, unmerited, unearned. And James is showing here, no, this, this is grace. And asking God, there's tremendous grace. You don't have to do anything. You just ask. And notice it's a command. This isn't an option. And you might look at this conditionally and say, well, it says in verse 5, if you lack wisdom, ask. Well, who lacks wisdom? All y'all. Everybody. Every single person in this room lacks wisdom. And, and so, therefore, this command is, is a command to ask. You have to ask. And take notice that 
that it, it doesn't use the language of prayer, but that's what he's saying. Pray. Are you in a trial and a tribulation? Pray. Are you not sure how to deal with a particular situation in your life? Pray. R.A. Torrey shares it like this. Pray for great things. Expect great things. Work for great things. But above all, pray. James is teaching us as Christians to grow in wisdom is to pray. And praying isn't to get something with God. Praying is to have communion with God. It's the way that God has designed us to be in communion with him. To shut off your Facebook and your Instagram and your Twitter and your Google this and your Google that and your Snapchat and all of the video games and all of the digital technology that is in front of your face. It's to turn all of that off to sit alone and still not be totally alone. And then to ask God for communion and help to be back into what was that fractured life to no longer be fractured, but to be whole again. And all you have to do is ask. And in that, that prayer, the Bible teaches a couple things in regards to this. First of all, you're not going to do this unless you value it. You have to actually value wisdom. Proverbs 4, chapter 4, verse 8, it talks about wisdom as a she, because, well, men usually are more foolish than women. If you don't believe me, Google some ways that men have tried to solve problems. You ever see the one where they like take a few ladders and they're, oh, forget it. <laughs> it says, prize her, speak of wisdom, prize her highly and she will exalt you. Value her and she will honor you. Embrace her. Proverbs sixteen sixteen says, wisdom is better than gold. It's more valuable. So you have to understand to get this, you have to, number one, I said it earlier, number one, you have to admit you're a fool. You have to have the humility to admit that you need wisdom. Number two, you have to value it. You have to want it. And this is why it's important to know your Bible, because I remember being 18 years old, and, and I, thought, I thought when I read Proverbs 4 or 8 that it was actually talking about a real woman and that she had broken up with me, and I thought, well, the Lord was going to give her back to me if I just value her, and I was wrong, just so you know. So you can read these things wrong. When you're in Proverbs, just know that when it says she, it's talking about wisdom. It's not talking about your girlfriend <laughs> or your wife. A couple things the Bible says to pray about in regards to wisdom. wisdom. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16. Paul uses some examples. He, he says in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 16, he's praying and he asks God that God would give the people in the Ephesian church wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Right? So he's saying, I want you to have knowledge of God, and I want you to have the ability to apply the knowledge of God to your life. And then he goes on in verse 18, and he says, how is this going to happen? By having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know of the true hope that is in you that you've been called for. Is this not true for most Christians? Oftentimes, you don't need new information. You need to know how to take the information you have and live it out. Like, if you're here every week, and you're like, man, you know, Jesse preaches the same stuff all the time. You want to know why? Because you're still not living it. When you live it, I'll move on fair some of you're like oh man that seemed a little sharp but it's true is it not true just admit it and again like now you've got the you've got the chance to actually test what i'm saying do you have the humility to admit that you don't necessarily live out the truth that you hear week in and week out i know i don't shocking i thought the pastor was perfect no i am not ask my wife and my kids they'll tell you i don't have it all together 
So we pray for this wisdom and we ask God, God, would you take, would you take the information I have that I've been given and allow it to make the travel, the distance between my brain and to my heart that I actually believe it to be true in faith and then I live it out. Because the next prayer is that when he says pray for wisdom in Colossians chapter one, verse nine, Paul says, I'm praying for you that you would walk worthy, that you would take the spiritual wisdom you have and you'd walk worthy in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, that you'd walk in a worthy manner. That's his prayer. That in everything you do, again, you're acknowledging God in what you do and you're doing it in a way that is, that is showing that God is worthy and that your life, again, is a poetic, artistic life. And then James adds to this thought, this idea of you need to ask God. You have to do this. You need to ask him. This is a command. And, and, and then in addition to asking him, when you ask, just know that when you ask, verse 6, let him ask with faith, with no doubt. You catch it? When you ask, don't doubt. Because the doubt can affect you as a human being. What's interesting about this is he goes on and adds to the thought, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. He's driven and he's tossed to and fro. What he's saying is a couple of things. First of all, that it says he's a double-minded man, if you notice in the text, that literally means that he's two-souled. He's a divided man. That he, he acts, this is the kind of person who acts a certain way on a Sunday is completely different on Monday through Saturday. And then the Bible teaches that he's fractured, he's divided, he's not whole. That fracturedness, again, we go back to sin, is what causes much of our depression and much of our anxiety. Because we just don't live in a way that is consistent. What's interesting, though, is as he goes on, he says that particular person is tossed to and fro by the waves. Does this sound familiar at all? We just spent 10 weeks in the book of Jonah, right? What was Jonah's job? To go preach the word of God to people who would respond to the word of God. And instead of doing that, he fractures his own soul, doesn't go to Nineveh, and runs to Tarshish. What, what James is saying is about the person who doubts is he's fractured. He, he is somebody who is a complete hypocrite in many ways. In addition to that, he's erratic. This is the kind of person who's just going wherever the world tells him to go. He's an unstable person. He's not fun to be around. This is not a poetic life. This is a fractured life. And you may think people like you, but the reality is people don't. Because you're not consistent. They don't know what to expect from you. What he's also saying in this reality, and you being unpredictable, how is the waves of the ocean, how do they move? Both through the wind or through the moon itself. External circumstances make the waves move. And what James is saying is, don't let external circumstances dictate what you know to be true in your life. Don't allow your friends to tell you how to live in your particular struggle or tribulation. Does this not even echo back to Job? Job is struggling, and he's got external people around him. His wife is one of them. Job, God hates you. Curse him and die. I'm sure they had a beautiful marriage, Job and his wife. Right? She, she comes to him and says, you, you are so broken and so fractured. God must hate you. You need to curse him and just check out. And then he's got a bunch of buddies who are supposedly God-fearing men, and they keep telling Job, Job, you're suffering because you've done something wrong. This would be the equivalent of me doing a hospital visit, seeing someone who's dying of cancer, and saying to them, what did you do? Right? It's fractured. 
And oftentimes what happens in our trial and tribulation, we allow the external world to dictate how we respond. And what's, what freaks me out about this is we live in the Bravo E channel culture. Reality TV, real world, housewives of Orange County, the Kardashian lifestyle. And somehow that has become the norm for our culture. Well, when somebody's doing something wrong, this is how you respond. And then you look at that as a Christian and you go, well, you know what? How dare somebody wrong me? How dare somebody talk trash about me? I need to gossip and I need to talk about these things. In fact, I'm even going to go on Facebook right now and say, you know what? There's just some people in life that just really suck at stuff. The worst is when people get on Facebook and they, they start ranting about their politics as if it's changing anybody's mind. Everybody's talking. Nobody's listening. That is foolishness. That's not wisdom. And the, the culture around you is saying, express yourself, express yourself, express yourself. Well, what if God is saying, no, 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 no. That is to be a double-minded man. That's to be unstable. That's to be crashed back and forth and be slammed against the rocks of the world. A real stable person understands that they don't stand on sand. They stand on the rock that is Jesus Christ. And they stand on his truth. And they allow the word of God to dictate how they emotionally respond to everything in life. And if someone starts talking trash about you, that becomes really easy when you look at Jesus when they persecuted him to say, well, you know what? Nobody's hanging me on a cross right now. And vengeance is the Lord's. Oh, and, and by the way, God says the way you change the world isn't by biting back. You change the world by humbly serving your enemies because Jesus even washed Judas's feet. Then all of a sudden it becomes palatable. You mean it's okay if someone cuts me off on the freeway? Yeah, count it all joy. You, you, you mean it's okay if somebody steals from me? Count it all joy. This is the wisdom. You're now applying it to your life. Well, they obviously needed that bicycle more than my kids did. Thank you, Lord, that somebody's got a free bike. I didn't tell Brad this. I got bad news for you. We put those baskets out for the teachers. And I'm pretty sure we had some neighbor kids come and take some stuff out of them thinking that they were for them. So double-check those packages. Count it all joy. <laughs> pretty sure there's some teachers at the school not getting markers. And this is important because it changes, again, the way that we respond and act as a church. So I've said before, we've done a, the team did a beautiful job making next door beautiful. You know what we are not to do? protect next door to still got to be beautiful no 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 no. we have kids and kids are rough on stuff aren't they the building's to be used it's almost a fear of mine we start making everything nice and then we go well we got to protect it no we don't this stuff is all material this stuff's all going to burn we're living for something more eternal we're about relationships and we're about people we want this building to be used and abused and if we have to replace the seats or we got to paint another wall if you take a real close look you'll you'll notice that there are a few places painted around the building that aren't quite color matched and it's because inevitably somebody has put a hole in the wall and we've patched it and then the paint that we have is like five years old or ten years old and it just never will match again no matter how hard we try it just won't match so if you look around and you go man this place needs a little bit of work it's because we're using it to love people Okay? And so again, we look at this and we say, we can't, we don't doubt God. I'm not going to be double-minded. I'm, I'm going to ask. And, and the, the, the important verb that is mentioned here is the verb ask, right? 
because it teaches us something about the God that we serve, that we have, my friends, a giving God. He gave his only begotten son. He gave his son to you that you would be in right relationship with him. And God is described to us through Jesus Christ as God the Father. And this is important to, to just make the distinction that some of us didn't have great dads. And both of my dads, my biological father and my stepfather, very fractured for very different reasons, but fractured nonetheless. They were not perfect examples of love and compassion and understanding. And my guess is if you're a father here this morning, you are not a perfect example of love and sacrifice to your children. And maybe people, maybe that makes you feel bad, but it shouldn't because, because if you're a Christian, you can point your children to the perfect father who can actually love them in a way that you can't. It's the best thing you can give your child. To give them someone they can run to who fully knows them and still fully loves them. Completely understanding with complete grace. But he's the perfect father and he tells us, he tells us, James will tell us later in chapter four, you have not because you don't ask. You have not because you ask not. You have to actually make this request to God, whatever it is in your trial and tribulation, and then recognize when you ask, you have a God that he then teaches within the text. He said he's a God that gives generously and without reproach. Again, James is pulling from the Sermon on the Mount. When he says that that he gives graciously, he's pulling again from Matthew chapter 7 where it says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks find, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is perfect in heaven give good things to him who asks? And he's not talking about salvation. Some teach this as, well, this is Jesus talking about salvation. No, no, no. Jesus knocked on the door of your heart that you would open it to him. Now he's saying, knock on the door of my heart so I can give you the life that you've always wanted to live. The true deep life. And this is not defined by nice cars and fat bank accounts. It's defined by living the life that you have and being completely thankful in the life, thankful in the home that you have, full of gratitude. Thessalonians says the will of God is to be thankful. I have young people who ask me all the time, what's the will of God? I'll just start right there. Are you thankful? Are you thankful? That is hard to deal with in our American culture that's telling you strive for more, get more, get more, get more. Don't be thankful for what you have. Keep going. But in Christianity, you say, Lord, what kind of car do I have? I got a VW Bug. Man, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. I got a two-bedroom house. Thank you, Lord. Just thank, say thank you to him. Thank you for the wife that you've given me. Thank you for the husband you've given me. Thank you for the kids that you I know they're a pain. Just thank the Lord. I know they're hard. Marriage is tough. We talked about it last week, didn't we? Paul actually says, if you marry, you will have worldly trouble. That's the Bible talking, not Jesse. He gives without, he gives generously, it says, no conditions, And he also gives without reproach, which means that he will not ever remind you of how undeserving or unworthy you are. He'll never guilt you or chide you for not asking sooner. What it is is James is inviting us to go to a perfect God who's holy within our trial and tribulation and maybe outside of the trial and tribulation and to just run to him and say, Lord, I'm going to admit that I'm a fool and I need your wisdom. And I'm going to have faith in you. 
And if my faith ever wavers, may I look at the cross where you gave yourself for me, where you died for my sins and in my place. That's where our place of doubt comes from. And we believe in that not just because the Bible says so, but because we have witnesses throughout all of Scripture that said, listen, we saw this. We have history that says we saw this. Jesus died and he rose from the grave. And that's where we place our faith and our hope. And so that way when we move forward in the trial, we know without doubting God's going to be good to us in this. What if it's true that you can go through this life in pain and suffering and still be completely joy-filled? What if that's true? I think it is. Now, the next question for us as we leave is, will we continually place ourselves in front of a very wise, beautiful, loving Savior and say, God, would you give me wisdom? Because I'm a fool. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we ask this morning as we progress into singing a last song that you would give us the ability to ask of you and to have faith in you and then to receive it from you. We thank you, Lord, that you don't remind us of our unworthiness, but you remind us of how gracious you are and willing to give. We pray that as we continue to study the book of James that you would thrust us further and further into your heart to live the life that you've called us to live, which will ultimately lead to our full satisfaction and joy. And we trust you for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, let's stand together.